Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that puts every part of the property world under a microscope. And today we're looking at the UK's life sciences sector and asking whether developers and landlords are ready to meet its growing needs. There are a whole range of firms that I know have just raised capital. And if you look at the types of businesses they're investing in and the geography that they need to invest in, it gives you a sense as to what's going to be created and, and how much is going to be created over the next two to three years. You need to be able to guarantee that you have a certain amount of energy over a 24-hour period. You need to have certain gases going into the building. You need to have higher floor-to-ceiling height so that you can get your chemical engineering into the same room. All of these things make a building quite expensive to develop. You need lots of lease flexibility. You're a small company. You want you know, a three-year lease or a five-year lease. Um, you might fail. You might grow very fast. As a landlord, you've got to get your head around that. I'm Guy Ruddle, and I have to say I'm feeling slightly intimidated by the brain power in the studio with me today. Let's start with Olivia Drew, who is the Portfolio Manager for UBS's UK Life Science Strategy. That means focusing on the development of fit-for-purpose life science facilities. Olivia, welcome to Real Estate Insights. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Freddie Deer is another massive brain. He's the Investment Manager at Monograph Capital, and as part of that, he's Head of Corporate Development at one of their portfolio companies, Ascend Gene and Cell Therapies. Freddie, welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And Tom Mellows is Head of UK Science at Savills. He advises occupiers, landlords, developers and investors on all things science property related. He's no stranger to real estate insights. Tom, we last met, uh, well, before COVID, actually, when we were talking about this subject in relation to Oxford and Cambridge. Maybe three years ago, yeah. So it's going to be good to talk about what's happened in that period. And very uh, nice to be here, Guy. And has has everything that you were saying then, I mean, it's a long time ago, has everything you were saying then come true? To sound a bit smug, it's been very <laughs> nice to see that lots of the things we were predicting are starting to come true. Well, there you are. Thank you all very much. Uh, thank you for listening to Real Estate. No, no, no. <laughs> we better talk about this a bit more than that. So let's talk about the, the, this whole life science sector. Fred, let me, let me start with you. Uh, as, a, as a sector biotech, life sciences, whatever you want to call it. How healthy is it <laughs> in the UK? Where's it going? What's been happening? Where are we? Yes. Yeah, so I think uh, first thing to say is that 2022 has been a pretty interesting year for the life science sector. The public markets especially have taken a downturn. So a lot of the biotech companies that listed in uh, 20 and 21 are all uh, all underwater. Um and that what that has meant is that uh, the public markets are no longer accessible this at, the, at this current time for private biotech companies. Um, and uh, what that has also meant is that the investment community has taken a bit of a pause on investing into new companies. But fundamentally, all of these venture funds and private equity funds raised a lot of capital in, in uh, 20 and 21. And so actually, there is a lot of sort of dry powder out there in the industry, which needs to be deployed over the coming uh, 18 months, two years. And in a sort of global world, um, are different countries competing for you know, life science uh, development and, and companies, you know, is the UK competing with Europe and America to, for, 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 for being a place to do this stuff? Yeah, certainly. And uh, I think uh, what you have seen, especially since I've, I've been in this, in this industry, is a lot of the US uh, investment funds are, are now looking more and more in Europe. And I think that is because uh, there is just a fantastic scientific bed in, in the UK and Europe. And how important in attracting 
businesses and helping the the industry grow in a country is the is the property sector. It's it's something that I've pushed to have uh, in the forefront of people's minds when we when you um, start these companies. And I think in the US, whilst there is now just a, a massive crunch in terms of space for for companies in in all of the biotech hubs. Um, there has been this ecosystem of the uh, universities right next to incubator space, right next to investors, and right. uh, and the property developers have cottoned on and and uh, built these uh, buildings that allow sort of flexible leases and and. Uh, uh, companies to come in and if they fail then another one will take their place if they want to grow then they take the floor above after a first year if they raise more capital then they move into another building which is just down the road and that ecosystem has has grown and become very uh, strong in the US and I think I think you know certainly since I've been involved in the UK we're seeing that grow so talking about property developers, Olivia. Yes. Uh, so you're you're. Let me let me remind people what your title is. Your portfolio manager for UBS's UK Life Science Strategy. So, what does that mean? What are you doing? Yeah. Well, so I mean, UBS as a, as a group have a number of kind of um, pockets of expertise in capital across capital structures, but we are focused on the real estate specifically. So, my uh, fund develops uh, labs, manufacturing facilities um, for life science companies in the UK. And, you know, we are definitely behind the US in terms of what they've created out there, which is incredible and amazing ecosystem for these companies to operate in. But a huge amount of capital and number of investors have kind of flocked into the sector in the UK too. And we see some really exciting clusters developing, some really exciting sites developing. But I think one thing that definitely needs to be appreciated, and it's spoken about in real estate circles, but whether it's spoken about in science circles is like the planning environment in the UK and the development cost environment at the moment, all of these things make it challenging to be developing this type of real estate. And you also need to know quite early on, probably earlier than you are able to really know where you want your facility and how much space you want so that, you know, we can kind of meet that demand. And so there's a bit of a tension that we see because we are, we, a lot of our portfolio deals with companies slightly later stage. So they need more space, um, and we need to know earlier than they maybe even know where they want their space and how they want it. So there's a bit of an issue there. But there's a huge amount of capital going into the sector now and some really, you know, some real scale coming through. So let's sort of sort of broaden it out slightly then and sort of look at the, the whole sector. Tom, perhaps I could get you to, to, to start with. Uh, first of all, where, where are we talking about in terms of location uh, for life sciences sector? Is it, is it quite concentrated or is it all over the place? It is concentrated. I think what's been really exciting to see is that that venture capital starts to translate into more and more occupational demand. So more companies wanting space uh, and specifically lab space. And that's really what's been driving the the growth, the maturity of, of different locations. And yeah, five years ago, it was probably Cambridge that you would look to and say, well, that's that's the obvious place for these companies to go. Um, but since then, what we've seen is we've seen Oxford turn from a regional office market where you had firms of accountants, solicitors, um, you know, service sector companies um, to being dominated by companies um, from the science sector and the life science sector. Um, something like 80 percent of the demand in that market today that we're tracking is from those types of companies. But you still don't have any purpose built uh, lab space or very little purpose-built lab space in that market. So, you know, there is this lag between 
uh, landlords reacting to the demand and being able to deliver space. So it's not just that they're sitting there not doing it, but the planning system is a constraint. You know, sites sites are a constraint. And the other big factor that I think has been a real barrier is lab premiums. So we haven't got much evidence even today of what a lab premium is. So what an occupier will pay for a much more expensive lab building, because an office building is cheaper to develop. A lab Mm. building is more bespoke and more expensive to develop. At the risk of asking a very stupid question, What's the sort of fundamental difference between a, a, a you know constructing a lab and constructing an office building? Essentially, you know, labs have to have very stable kind of air environments. The air needs to be clean, and you need to be able to guarantee that you have like you know a, num- a, a certain amount of energy over a twenty-four hour period. Um, you need to have certain gases going into the building. You need to have higher slab to slab, so your floor to ceiling height, so that you can get your mechanical engineering into the same room. So for an office, you could have a much um, smaller slab to slab height. All of these things make you know a building quite expensive to develop versus an office. And maybe I should just add from the yeah. company perspective, the key thing when you're in an early stage biotech is generation of data, yeah. and uh, and you can't lose samples, and so you need all of these backups in in the facility that you're in to make sure you can ma- maintain samples and maintain the flow of generation of data because that directly translates into cash runway of the business and data is what you can raise additional capital from. So like that's why when we think about our building strategy when we build these companies, it, it you need seamless transition of constantly having scientists working and, and uh, reducing the risk as much as possible that anything is going to impact your, your timelines. The, the other thing I would say as a landlord, it's not just the physical real estate, it's the mindset that the landlord has to have. So the traditional real estate model has been led to a good covenant yeah. for a long lease that underpins your investment value here. Freddie was talking about it earlier. You know, you need lots of lease flexibility. You're a small company. You want, you know, a three-year lease or a five-year lease. Um, you might fail. You might grow very fast. As a landlord, you've got to get your head around that. You've got to almost change your whole philosophy on how you underwrite your investments. I think the way that we see it as well from a real estate perspective is it's also kind of an infrastructure play rather than uh, you know, we we believe in the fundamentals of the sector and to, you know, Freddie's point earlier, where it's going, you know, the future trajectory. So as long as the facilities we're building are not too bespoke to any one underlying occupier, it kind of forms infrastructure for the sector. So, I mean, we've sort of covered what the requirement is. I think the the hard thing that comes out of that is the, change, the changing nature of it within even a company, right? So uh, when a company is very small... It needs one. It has one requirement, but it changes as, as, mm. as time goes on. How do you, how do you, Olivia, deal with that? Are, are you, are you saying, well, let's develop property which can be, uh, which can be used by a company as it grows, or do they need to move from property to property as they grow? Do you think? Um, I'd say a bit of both. So we want there to be facilities across, you know, the UK where companies can start as two or three people rolling out of a university and being able to scale up in that same location to a certain extent. But you get to a point where you need to, you know, have, you know, your own floors, your your own kind of privacy data, etc., where you need to, your kind of requirements do start to change. And then particularly as you move through your clinical stages and, you know, approach commercialization of a product and you need a manufacturing facility, as Freddie said, that again changes the location where you can be. And you can't manufacture at scale in central London or central Oxford or central Cambridge. So the locations start to change a bit there. And that's why we've been quite heavily focused on locations like Stevenage, where there's more 
space available for a larger facility. Um, but it's still very close to central London so that the same people can be going back and forth. Yeah, but you're not next door to a university. Are you? You're not next door no. to Imperial College or something no, like not. that, are no, you? No, but that, Does that, that matter? It, well, it would if you were um, if you were a slightly earlier stage company doing something slightly different. But once you're more mature and you need to have this kind of infrastructure around you, this servicing into your unit, your accessibility to Heathrow, you know, you've got patients at the other end of these therapies that you're needing to get therapies back to very quickly. You can't be in central London for that. So depending on where you are in your business and what you're doing, dictates the lo- location. The other thing I would say is that when when these these ecosystems or when these markets start proximity to a hospital or Mm. academia is very important but what we've seen in more mature markets in the u.s for example is those those sort of clusters break down quite quickly and and they spread out through necessity Mm. and the importance of being very close to those things reduces over time we've talked a, a lot about what the sector needs i suppose the sort of classic crucial question tom is is it being provided starting to be i would say like what's very exciting for me being based in london is to is to see the first sort of science focused lab schemes coming out of the ground and being delivered and that's really great to see and being being delivered by landlords that have got the belief a bit like ubs you know they are they're saying right okay we recognize all the challenges but we're going to do it anyway because we believe in the whole story and we can see it starting to happen you could say olivia that that you're that you're sort of developing into a dangerous market developing into a sector where you've got you can't see anything you can't see the future that, properly. Is, that is one of the huge challenges for our for the real estate investors is that um there's quite limited data available in the UK about what we would typically look at as real estate investors, your kind of take-up statistics and your mm-hmm. demand schedules mm-hmm. and things like that. It's not as developed as in the other sectors. So for the real estate investors, we're having to look at other forms of data. We're looking to the US, what happened there. We're looking at the sector itself, the capital raised outside of just VC. VC is only one piece of the puzzle. Um, you want to say yeah, well, something? I just want to <laughs> just say one thing to that because... 2021 was the largest amount of VC capital raised into life sciences ever. Um, And whilst I said there is a a pause and and 2022 is down, I think it's still like on track to be the fourth largest year of venture capital investment into the life sciences. So whilst it's down on 2021, it's still it's it's still there's a lot of it. And there's a lot of dry powder. There's a lot of dry powder. And that's where I I would... um, I, you've no doubt done this analysis, but there, there are there are you know a whole range of firms that I know have just raised capital, and if you look at the types of businesses they're investing in and the geography that they need to invest in, it gives you a sense as to what's going to be created and and how much is going to be created over the next two to three years. Um, no, Jade, even removing twenty one from our kind of forecasts and just growing it out like that, it still looks super healthy in terms of the demand picture. So that's absolutely the case. But it kind of comes at a time where the wider real estate market is experiencing a lot of shocks yeah. with what's happening to rates and things like that. It comes with limited data on the on the take up side. Yeah. Um, so it just has all kind of come at a challenging time altogether. But we still absolutely believe in the fundamentals long term. Okay, but. The, the other thing about this is, you know, when we're talking about VC and, and that sort of thing, there are lots of these businesses go nowhere. Yeah. So you can have all that money can go in, they could all go nowhere. And what you're doing, Olivia, is you're building very specific property for people, which is hard to change to, to somebody else. You know, so if if the sector does all, I don't know, 
disappear to Frankfurt or the the States or whatever, there's a, isn't there a danger that you've got a load of property that you just you can't repurpose? Well, so that's... Sorry, maybe I wasn't clear initially. You absolutely can repurpose the facilities. They would be a very over-specified office building, but they could absolutely be returned to an office building. And that's a really important thing for us as an investor is that we keep the buildings as flexible as possible, whether that's to accommodate lots of different types of science or occupiers or whether we have to move sector and it needs to be an industrial unit or an office block, for example. Um, but no, absolutely, we are building expensive facilities. So the work we've done into the sector and the fundamentals was a huge part of being able to do that. Yeah, I, I would say you made the point earlier, it's an infrastructure play. Yeah. The value, the investment value is not created by the covenant no. of the company. It's mm. created by create, developing the right product that has broad appeal. And it takes a lot of expertise and experience to know what that recipe, that magic recipe is. And that IP is closely guarded by, you know, the landlords that have it. Mm. Um, and it takes time to develop those, those sort of that knowledge, I suppose. The, the other thing I think is uh, quite exciting is, um, is just the journey that lots of these companies are on. They're researching a new treatment or a new piece of technology. As they get to the point that they commercialise and they have a product to actually sell they need to manufacture that. And we're starting to see the growth in demand for manufacturing space, not just lab space. I think that's where somewhere like a new a new market like Stevenage, for example, we're seeing the, the growth of a small cluster of cell and gene therapy companies in Stevenage. And the first one of those, Autolus, that's reaching completion. It's about 84,000 square feet. And, and um, we're starting to see more and more companies want that type of facility. And that's going to create the next level of challenge for landlords, I suppose, in that they've got to get their heads around what these facilities need to They're cons- even more constitute. expensive than a lab to build. So it's uh, kind of another challenge. Now, uh, we can't go without doing our little feature, which we always do on Real Estate Insights. Tell me something I don't know, a little nugget of information which shines an extra little bit of light on it. Has everyone got got to tell me something I don't know? You were warned in advance yep. that you'd we have to warned. come up with yep. something. Yeah. Uh, we'll do Tom last. So we'll start with Freddie. Freddie, tell me something I don't know. So whilst I said the IPO market is closed, uh, initial public offering for these biotech companies, one company did manage to go out, I think, uh, a week or so ago, a preclinical. You had the wave of gene editing. This is a preclinical company, meaning it hasn't got to putting its products into patients yet. They managed to raise 150 million and uh, close their IPO at a 1.7 billion valuation for a new technology called prime editing, where uh, you do not need to cut DNA, um, and it's meant to be the next big thing. So, and it's, there you, there's not, it's, it hasn't actually been used on a patient. Hasn't been used on a patient yet. It's uh, at the moment hopes and dreams, but shows you that there is still the funding there are still investors willing to go into a very early stage company and put a very high valuation uh, even in a down market olivia what about you tell tell us something we don't know um so about 12 percent of advanced therapy medicinal product trials happen in the uk so 12 percent of global clinical trials in these advanced therapies happen here yeah and tom tell us something we don't know so um we're in a golden age of scientific discovery. Uh, one little stat would be there's something like 2,000 gene therapies currently, so that's manipulation of DNA, um, in development worldwide. So from early stage research um, through to late stage clinical trials, so that's doubled in the last three years. And uh, to date, less than nine have been approved for treatments into patients. So it shows you where the next 10 years are going to be taking us. 
Well, listen, thank you all so much for that. I, you know, as I say, Tom and I talked about this subject a, a number of years ago. I'm really glad with the, that we got to return to it because uh, I think I, for one, have, have learned an awful lot. Uh, so thank you all very much for, for being here and, and, and doing that for us. Uh, if all that's done is whet your appetite for more information on this subject or anything to do with property, really, you'll find plenty on the research section of the Savills website, savills.co.uk slash research. You'll find reports, blogs, uh, all sorts of interesting things there. That's it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice. Savills accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of, reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content. Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills' prior written consent.